I'm now joined by Stephen Gallagher. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Good. So you're here today to talk about the target novelization of Warriors Gate. I haven't received the book yet, so I've not had a chance to, to read it. I, but I understand you've written two short stories to go with it as well. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Well, the text of Warriors Gate itself is um, the the unused original text back from uh, from 1979, 1980, when I first wrote it. I wrote it um, before the uh, the show went onto the studio floor. So I was working from my uh, my delivered drafts, which I'd been told were were signed off as the final drafts. But then uh, then the uh, the director and the script editor uh, Chris Bidmead and uh, and Paul Joyce um, they uh, they they reworked the script into a shooting script. So there were differences between what I'd written text wise and uh, and and what they actually shot, which for me wasn't a problem because I thought, oh well, that's great because it means that the two things will have distinct identities and one will kind of fill in the gaps that uh, that you know that the other leaves uh, but uh, john nathan turner wasn't happy so he um he he vetoed the novelization in that form so i in a very very quick hurry had to uh, had to revamp it along the lines of the tv scripts and because i saw a distinction between novel writing and tv writing i wanted to make sure that you know the two weren't lumped in together when it came to people looking at my prose so i published chimera in 1980 under Stephen Gallagher, you know, my, my own name. And I took John Lidecker as the novelizing name for, for Warrior's Gate. And it originally came from, uh, it came from a radio play that I'd, uh, I'd written for Saturday Night Theatre on Radio 4. There was a character in An Alternative to Suicide, which is the title of the science fiction show, um, called Lidecker. And I'd stolen the name in turn from Howard and Theodore Lidecker, who were the two brothers who did the special effects on the old um, Republic serials. They made Captain Marvel fly, and then then later in the uh, later in their careers, they um, they did the special effects on Voice to the Bottom of the Sea. So I, I just liked the name, so I, I took it for uh, for the novelization. And after a while, um, it became clear that there was going to be no confusion between the two sides of it. And I was adapting my own stuff for, for TV anyway, and it just made more sense to have the one name. But I was John Lidecker for a while. For a little while, I was Lisa Todd. I did uh, the kids from Fame books one and two because uh, you know you, you're trying to launch a career as a writer. You uh, you go where the money is, and uh, and on the strength of other novelizations that I'd done, I got offered these. But it didn't seem appropriate to have a bloke, you know, writing to uh, to an audience who that consisted mainly, I think, of little girls who were doing dance classes and aspiring to be ballerinas. So uh, so I, so I became Lisa. The weird thing is, I started getting fan mail. Or Lisa started getting fan mail that I then had to answer. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, what Stan Lee did. He used mm. he abbreviated his name for the comic books, and you would work on a Stan Lee project later. I mean, did you ever get to meet him? Never did. No, I mean Stan Lee's lucky man mainly I think existed because it had Stan Lee's name on it. Mm. The nearest I ever got to him was uh, I was on uh, I was in the Disney Studios in Burbank and. Um, the old animation building there is now offices that are leased out to different production companies. And of course, when you when you're in somewhere like the Disney Studios, you don't just go to your meeting. You um, you, you you take the time afterwards to have a little wander. So I had a wander in the old animation building, which was fascinating. And up on one of the upper floors, uh, there were the offices of uh, of Stanley Production. And of course, I don't know to what extent Stan was actually personally directly involved at that point. He was still doing the uh, 
still doing the cameos in the Marvel movies, but uh, I don't think he was strongly hands-on creatively anymore. So I'm going to ask you a question you've probably been asked about 50 times this week. How did you first discover Doctor Who? I first discovered Doctor Who, and I have been asked before, but not 50 times. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it still feels fairly fresh. (laughs) It doesn't feel like it was only yesterday. I mean, it was a long time ago. It was, in fact, in the William Hartnell era, Mm. and it was um, in the school playground. All the other kids were kind of walking around with their arms stuck in front of them. One arm stuck out long, one arm stuck out short, talking in the weirdest way. We had a TV, but it was a crappy old TV that my uh, my dad had managed to get from somewhere. And it only got ITV. We couldn't get BBC One because the switch on the front wouldn't go all the way around. So I didn't get to see stuff that was on the BBC. Um, but all the kids at school had been watching this new show, Doctor Who. And um, it had reached the second story, you know, and the Daleks, I think, were the thing that really made the show take off, you know, that really caught the uh, the widespread imagination. So I, I begged and pestered, and uh, and the next Saturday we went round to my grandmother's house. She had a TV that worked, and I saw my first Doctor Who episode, which would have been, I think, either episode two or possibly episode three of um, of the first Dalek story. Oh wow! Um, and from that point onwards, you know, I was uh, I was a, a junior Doctor Who fan. My dad had to <laughs> my dad had to devise a way of making our TV work for uh, for BBC. What? Well, the BBC as it was then. And I seem to remember he got um he got a stub of pencil and jammed it down the side of the switch so that the switch was forced over onto uh, onto the BBC frequency. And from that point onwards, you know, that, <laughs> the making of a young Doctor Who fan. I've just been admiring the shelf behind you. You've got Daleks up there. Oh yeah, yeah. That's um, I did have. I mean, I had a lot of Dalek Dalek memorabilia when I was small, and a lot of it kind of went by the wayside. I've still got the Dalek World Annual. That's that's mm. a bit of a treasure. What was great about the Dalek World Annual was that it wasn't even Doctor Who. It was an expansion of the universe beyond Doctor Who, in a sense that you know, outside the edges of the frame, there were uh, there was a lot more going on, and that that I think sort of set my imagination alight. And I think that is something that has worked for the show to its great advantage ever since. But that's that's a, a wind-up tin Dalek. It's not a vintage one. It's okay. well, it's about. I was given it for my fiftieth birthday, so it's it's a good few years old now. But um, but it's not one of the originals. It uh, it is nice though. So I wind it up every now and again. You must have been overjoyed when you got the call saying, "Will you write Warriors Gate?" Okay, yes, I was. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I had been working largely in radio. I had a job in TV. I worked for Granada TV in the presentation department, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't writing for TV. I wasn't making programs. I did have aspirations, obviously, in that area, but, you know, I I couldn't get my hands on the train set. Um, And radio was my way of kind of breaking into the business. And on the strength of the, um, the, the science fiction play that I mentioned before, An Alternative to Suicide, which um, featured in its lead role, Michael Jaston, who, you know, would later on become you know, a stalwart not only of Doctor Who, but of Doctor Who conventions. Uh, on the strength of that, the producer sent it over to the Doctor Who office and they gave it a read. And I got a call out of the blue saying, come and have a meeting. So I went and I met with uh, Chris Bidmead in Threshold House, um, the the least encouraging building you can possibly imagine for, uh, for you know, for an imagination factory uh, on Shepherd's Bush. And um, it kind of went from there. You know, I uh, I did a one-page outline of, uh, of a story that eventually would become Warrior's Gate. And they asked me to, ex- they, they paid me some money to expand on that um, into, you know, a, a four-episode treatment. And 
on the back of that, I got the gig. There was a lot going on at the time that I wasn't aware of. Apparently, um, they commissioned Christopher Priest, who is uh, a science fiction writer for whom I have enormous admiration. And they commissioned him for um, for that slot, uh, the one that I eventually finished up getting. Um, didn't know about that at all. Um, and I can kind of see what the problems would have been because Chris is a really good literary novelist through and through. Um, and there are certain kind of, there are certain genes you have to have to be a popular TV writer, you know, by which I mean, you know, a writer of popular fiction within television that, um, that I think he, he finds slightly anathema. So I'm not surprised that that didn't work out. I do regret the fact that it didn't work out because, you know, a Christopher Priest Doctor Who story will be quite something to see. And the fact that they were sort of considering the two of us in competition at the time, I'm really uneasy and unhappy about. But, I mean, it's so long ago now. I mean, you know, what does it matter? But uh, on the strength of uh, of the uh, the treatment, um, I got the script commission. And I forget exactly how many drafts of the script there were. Um, all my stuff is in uh, the uh, the City Archive in Hull now, the University Archive in Hull City Archives, to be more precise. So any researcher who... Um, who actually is so so interested that they want to know uh, can go up there and uh, and you know unpick the history of the whole thing. Frank Collins for his uh, for his Black Archive book spent quite a bit of time in there and uh, and finished up telling me stuff that I didn't know. <laughs> so a lot of Doctor Who fans wonder if you were smoking something of the herbal variety when writing this. Can you clear that up for us? Absolutely not. I'm sorry, but that's what the inside of my head looks like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't smoke anything. Um, there are a lot of influence in the, influences in there that I've, you know, I've talked about in various places and I acknowledge them freely. Um, I, I work on the principle of, you know, steal from the many and call it inspiration because, uh, because how old was that? I was about, what, 23, 24 at the time? Um, well, maybe 25, you know, getting on a bit. And um, I was brimful of uh, of the stuff that I loved and that I was, um, you know, that I'd seen in my education. Um, and specifically, you know, and I've, as I say, I've mentioned this before, but specifically Jean Cocteau was a huge influence on the whole thing. His version of the uh, the Voyage to Hell in or Hades in um, in Orphea, um that influenced the the whole gateway and the notion that you know you go through mirrors and um, and once you go through mirrors then you're actually in the castle of the Beast in La Belle et La Bête another Cocteau movie and the Gundown Warriors I stole those from um, uh, Kaczynski's Russian version of Hamlet where. Um, Hamlet, the ghost of Hamlet's father is this enormous um, black armoured figure in a huge billowing cloak striding through um, the ruins of, of Elsinore in, uh, in slow motion. And various things that I picked from here and there. Um, at the ending, we have um, all that um, stuff with uh, the black and white um, gardens in the background. That's all inspired by um, Alain René uh, last year at Marienbad. And there's probably a ton more that, uh, that, you know, that if you pick me up on it, I would probably have to hold my hands up and say, yeah, I stole that as well. <laughs> well, you can't help but be inspired when you're creative, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, the important thing is to add something of your own, you know, and I, I've done um, sort of mentoring for uh, for writers over the years and I've, I've worked with other writers. And uh, one of the things I always say is that um, it's okay to start out by uh, by copying what you love. You know, you you write what you love, and as you go along, uh, you will you will discover that 
without you even intending or consciously doing it, something of you will creep in. And you have to be alert to that. And then when you see it, seize upon it and that you develop because that's what's going to be your personal style. Um, and that is your personal style, whether you know it or not. That's good advice. You've worked um, on British productions and American productions. Is there any difference between the way that the two countries do stuff? Enormous difference. Um, in Britain, the writer, I mean, it, it's changing a little bit, but it's not changing enough or fast enough. Uh, in Britain, the writer is a peace worker. You know, you, um, you, you, you write stories and you hope to sell one one day. And every time you sell one, you have a little party and you work on it and you hand it over and they go off and make it. And you're kind of left standing there, you know, with with a check that you have to make last until you sell your next one. And that's the way that, you know, the British uh, the British scene works. If you if you have a run of popularity and I've you know, I've had this, I've had runs of popularity where, you know, you make the most of it. You uh, I remember Dennis Potter saying after the singing detective, he took every job that was going, which is how he finished up writing stuff like scripts for Gorky Park, a Hollywood movie, not what you would call the Dennis Potter project. But he said, you know, when when the doors open, uh, make the most of them. So so, you know, that's what you do in, in the course of your career. What happened with the Hollywood thing for me was that comparatively late in my career, one of my um, shows, 11th Hour, that I created for uh, for British TV, got picked up by Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, and Bruckheimer TV bought the format and revamped it for a CBS as an American show and automatically um, expected me to be a part of it, which... I was taken aback by because, you know, I was from this piecewalker culture of British writing and I was given my introduction to the um, the genuinely organized industry that is American television, where you don't buy the, the story and then make it. You hire a team of writers who then create the stories for you around the showrunner's vision. And the great thing was that, you know, the showrunner's vision was my vision for uh, for um, 11th Hour, as um, mediated through and rewritten by uh, Cyrus and Ethan, the uh, the two actual showrunners on the show. Uh, so I wrote for, uh, for that. I wrote for, um, I was lead writer, stroke showrunner. I wasn't full showrunner, but I was more than a lead writer on a show for NBC called Crusoe, which was loosely adapted from the Daniel Defoe novel and as faithful as I could make it. But it became quite clear to me quite early on in the process that I was the only person in the loop who'd read the book. So <laughs> it had been pitched and sold by people who hadn't. Um, and, uh, and then I, uh, I had a development deal with Bruckheimer as well, which meant I developed shows for them. I wrote and sold several pilots. And I still have a foot in the door over there. I'm a member of the Writers Guild of America, which means technically I'm on strike at the moment, um, which doesn't have any kind of practical effect because I haven't got anything in production. But uh, if I did have something in production, then I wouldn't be able to work on it. Well, solidarity to them because they, they deserve better pay. Well, what's happened is, I mean, since I was over there, I kind of worked under the old system where, you know, the show had a writing staff. Um, I was a co-executive producer on a show called The Forgotten with Christian Slater. I don't think it ever made it over here, but that was for ABC. Uh, and there were two or three of us who were co-executive producers. There were two executive producers who were the showrunners. Uh, Danny Cannon was also an executive producer. He was the director of the pilot and kind of kept a steadying hand on the, the visual style of the show. 
and there were two or three other writers at the next level down and then there was a staff writer who was a newbie writer who comes in and is put on the staff and is basically learning the ropes and that at the time was the structure of every single show after that the streamers started to get um, a tighter hold on the market and producers started instead of aiming for like 26 week network seasons they would aim for maybe eight or 10 or 12 weeks which meant they didn't need as big a writing staff which meant that they would hire maybe two or three writers in what they called a mini room to develop um the the show over eight episodes and then once they'd got the scripts out of them they would let them go whereas under the old system or under the system that uh, that we're we're looking to return to something closer to under the old system then the writer stayed with the show from inception all the way through to final cut and you were there on the you know i was i was there on my episodes at the elbow of the director if they wanted to change a line or if a set didn't work and we had to reconceive some element of the script i was right there to to do it whereas now what happens is the um you know the writer's given the boot quite early on and uh you know you either the director or the actors make up lines and uh you know the uh, the control isn't there and the quality goes down when that happens you know it, you know the system was designed for a purpose and it's been undermined for no other purpose than doing doing it more cheaply yeah it's it's terrible and i think the audience can tell as well mm. when cost saving measures have been put into place uh, i need to ask you about bugs because my fiance is a massive fan of that and you wrote 10 episodes for bugs what was that experience like oh wow bugs yes um Back when I worked at Granada in presentation, the um, the promotions script editor was a guy called Stuart Doughty. Uh, the promotion script editor being the guy who um, has a team of script writers. Um, in that in that case, it was a guy, but you know, it could be a woman. He said, "Policing his own uh, his own expression there." Um, yeah, um, the the promotion script editor had a team of writers who would provide the on air material for uh, for the presentation department. And that would be trails, links between programs and stuff like that. Stuart went away and uh, started working for Brian Eastman at Carnival Films. And Carnival had this idea for uh, a show that kind of took the style of the old ITC shows of the 1960s. It was um, it was a, a three-person uh, lineup and light touch adventure um, with um, you know with, with not not too serious entertainment. And they, um, I think they developed it for ITV and someone at the BBC saw it. And while ITV were pondering as to whether they were prepared to commit or not, made an offer. <laughs> so they were suddenly in a position of having to make the show. And they had a pilot script. They had Brian Clemens on board, uh, the, uh, the guy who made the Avengers. Um, didn't create the Avengers, but really was responsible for its, its most creative period. They had him on board as, as a consultant. But they didn't have um, anything beyond a pilot. They didn't have any other scripts. And I got a call from Stuart saying, um, oh, you did Chimera. You can write bollocks about science. Can you uh, can you come in and have a meeting? So I went in for a meeting and I thought I would maybe get one episode out of the whole thing. And um, and so I wrote an, an episode which well, I pitched and then got commissioned for an episode called Assassin's Inc., where I threw in everything that I could possibly think of, you know, everything that I'd, I'd ever wanted to achieve in one of those shows that I'd grown up loving as a kid, uh, thinking, you know, I will never have to do um, any more of this. So let's take the opportunity as uh, as it presents itself. And I delivered that, and I got um, I got the response. We'll take a, as many of these as you can possibly do. Oh wow! 
So over the next three seasons, um, I wrote 10 of the episodes and consulted on the second and third seasons. And then there was a fourth season that I wasn't involved in because by then I'd, I'd gone off to prep and direct October, which um, was a mini series based on one of my own books that I made for Carnival, the same production company. So the contacts that I made on Bugs led to you know my own uh, directorial debut, as they call it. But it was it was a great period. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and I remember when Stuart said, we'll take as many of these as you can possibly do. I responded by saying, well, I'd really like to do another, but it would all hinge on whether you could get me a submarine. And there was a long, there was a long pause at the other end of the phone. And then Stuart said, all I can say at this stage, he said, is I don't see why not. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, for the next thing that I wrote, you know, they got me a submarine. Oh, an episode called Down Among the Dead Men. <laughs> Do you approach writing for radio or TV differently, or is it kind of the same approach, just a different process? It's There is a fundamental approach that I take to everything, and it's what I learned in the very early days. The very first sale that I made was to independent local radio when a bunch of us got together, the actors from the presentation department who were our continuity announcers, and the, the people up the road who made commercials at Piccadilly Radio with those same actors. So we all we were all linked together one way or another. Mm. And uh, somebody came up, it wasn't me, but somebody came up with the idea of us all conspiring to, um, to do a radio show, a radio drama. So I wrote a half hour radio drama. I'd never written anything before other than, you know, a couple of student plays and the school panto um, and a short story that I'd, submitted to um, Science Fiction Monthly, which is a large format magazine that New English Library were publishing at the time. It was large format because the uh, the main raison d'etre of the magazine was uh, was to reprint the, um, the art from their science fiction covers in poster form. So you'd buy this magazine, then you'd pin all the pages on your wall, <laughs> so, which was a, a canny idea. But I'd submitted a story to a competition they had that got absolutely nowhere, but I used that story as the basis for... Um, this half-hour pilot episode of um, of an unwritten serial. And the programme controller, a guy called Colin Murray at, um, at Piccadilly Radio, uh, said, OK, you know, I'll give you a budget. Go do it. So I then had to go and write the other five episodes. So that was three hours of dramatic material um, in scenes with character arcs from start to finish, a story that had to develop and have cliffhangers and, you know, incidents and turning points along the way. And I had to do it in, you know, something like 12 weeks. And I have never done quite as much in 12 weeks that's taught me so much as I did then. Um, and it kind of gave me a template for everything I've done since because the volume of, of story, you know, pure story, and the way that you have to break it to uh, to break it into characters, incidents, sequences, and, uh, and, and arcs, all of that works for any medium. And then when you actually come down to it, of course, the way that you express yourself on the page or the way that you express the drama on the page for radio, for prose, and for, they're different. But the underlying storytelling urge for all of them is more or less the same. Okay. I imagine there's a bit more exposition in audio than there is on screen. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky with audio because you don't want tons and tons. You don't want a word salad um, that you're piling onto people. What you want is, um, is triggers. You know, you want to trigger people to see things without necessarily having to describe that thing. Uh, and sometimes, you know, just the, the awe of a character's reaction um, 
paints a better picture in the mind than a detailed breakdown of what it is they're seeing. You know, it's just a case, my God, look at the size of that bloke, you know, and and it's not a case of uh, an enormous man just walks in. He, he's got to be seven feet tall, at least, you know, <laughs> that's where you're giving yourself away. Yeah. <laughs> so you were a big finish that I really enjoyed called Nightmare Country. How did you get involved with that? That was a lost tale. That was that was actually the story that I pitched after Terminus. Oh. Um, and I'd. I, I was still I was on a roll, you know, because uh, I was young and full of energy. Whereas now I don't have quite so much energy, but I have more skill. Yeah. And uh, and you know the balance kind of shifts as you uh, as you age. If you're lucky, if you if you're not lucky, then you know the energy just goes away. <laughs> but uh, but I, I I was on a roll, um, and I pitched um, a story for another season, and um, it was turned down. And I've still got Eric Saywood's um, rejection letter somewhere. He says it's another million dollar movie, and we just can't do them. <laughs> so, so that went into the uh, into the files. But the thing is, um, I'd worked it out in so much detail that when I came to look at it again, and you know, in recent years when I became involved in audio drama, because uh, you know I'd, I had that early early um, phase in, in radio drama and then radio drama kind of went away and then audio drama came in and, and took its place. Hmm. So when audio drama suddenly, you know, started becoming a thing in my life again, then I looked at it and um, I realized that I'd done all the work. <laughs> it was a million dollar movie. So, you know, it was, uh, it was problematical for, uh, for TV production, but I'd done all the work and, uh, and it wouldn't take a lot to, um, to make it happen. So I pitched it to big finish and, uh, and they went for it. And um, the great thing was that I got the cast that I would have got back then, you know, still doing it. And of course in audio, you know, you still can. Nobody gets older in, uh, in sound. So uh, <laughs> Have you always wanted to be a storyteller? Oh yeah, from the very beginning. You know, I uh, I did the, I think the very first thing that I remember doing was uh, uh, a ghost's first day at ghost school, and I remember drawing it and then proudly presenting my presenting it to my parents. And uh, God knows what they would have made of it, but they were very very encouraging, uh, as they were all through their lives. Um, you know, and uh, there is no greater gift to uh, to anyone who works in the arts than than parents who are one hundred percent behind them. Uh, as I had, and um, yeah, from the very, very beginning. And um, as I uh, as I grew older, you know, I used to copy the uh, the faces from Mad Magazine and um, and and make my own comics. I remember I'd do my own version of the Man from Uncle using Mort Drucker's story from the uh, uh, sketches from the Mad Parodies as uh, as my models. He did rather better, I've got to say. But and I built myself um, a projector out of a shoebox with a torch in it, and, and oh, drew wow. my own movies on plastic bags, and then held the polythene bag in front of the the hole that was cut in the end of the shoebox, and projected it onto the wall, and and <laughs> forced friends and relatives to uh, to sit and watch the uh, the thing while I did the soundtrack. So yeah, nothing's yeah. changed. Yeah, yeah. How's the industry changed since you started out? Oh, massively. Um, I mean, when I um, when I left university and joined Granada, which was kind of at the end of Granada's golden age, um, I was so lucky to be there. Um, this was the the kind of late days of World in Action. It was before the two uh, guys who John Cleese referred to as the upstart caterers mm. came in and started asset stripping the company, and then ran the company down, 
to the point where, well, they ran the company down to the point where it just wasn't Granada anymore, but it, it absorbed all the other companies and became this monster that we now know as ITV. But the culture at Granada was something special. And um, and I don't see anything quite like that anywhere at the moment. And to you know, my great fortune was that I come out of that culture, and and I I kind of grew in confidence on the basis of it, and that has seen me through um, some tricky times. You know, I've I've made alliances, and uh, and I've I've seen people you know go out of business, and I've bounced from one place to another. I seem to have um, a kind of lucky knack of walking out of one car crash into something new and I've been doing it long enough now. And I think I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm probably not that far from the end of the road now. So I think I can look back and say, well, you know, it worked out for me, but that's like, you know, the guy crossing Niagara Falls on the tightrope. You know, when you get to the other side, you look back and say, well, it worked out for me. That doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't a foolhardy venture. And it doesn't mean yeah. that, uh, that it was safe. Do you have any tips for writing dialogue? Um, You've, yeah, say it out loud and make it absolutely the minimum possible. You can, uh, I mean, you can tell with uh, with a lot of dramas that the dialogue probably looked fine to the writer as they wrote it down, but no human being quite speaks that way. Um, and the best tip I ever got was from um, a book by, a very short book by David Mamet, the playwright called uh, On Directing, I think it was called. And he said, the only reason people speak is to get something they want. Uh, they don't say something like, hey, Bill, I'm coming over tonight to uh, to get back the money that I lent you last Tuesday. He says, they don't say that. What they say is, where the hell were you yesterday? <laughs> and then from that point, you know, it yeah. emerges as to what the uh, what the contention is. And I've always thought that was possibly the single most useful piece of advice I've ever seen from an on-writing book. And uh, it's the piece that um, I, I pass on without any embarrassment. You know, I don't pretend it's mine, but it is useful. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Stephen, I'm aware of the time, and I know you've got a few of these to do, so I'm going to thank you for joining me. Oh, it's been brilliant. Thank you. I'd just like to remind our listeners that the Warriors Gate target novelization is out on the 13th of July. Brilliant. I hope you get your copy. Yeah, yeah, I hope so.